Uh, if you have a Bible, turn with me to the book of Ruth in the Old Testament. We're going to be in chapter 4. This morning we are finishing this Old Testament book of Ruth. And it's the story of two desperate widows and how they courageously trust the Lord and find redemption through God's dogged faithfulness and mercy. Yet as we come to the end, we also discover that Ruth is telling us another story, one that is unseen except in retrospect. It's the story of how God's great plan of salvation is seemingly derailed by the forces of evil, sin, and death, but it is itself unexpectedly rescued through the selfless devotion and bold love of a young Moabite refugee and an old Bethlehemite farmer, both of whom put their security at risk to secure the future of another. And while Ruth and Boaz won't live to see the full consequences of their actions, their deeds will, as we discover, preserve not only the royal line of King David, but their actions in their day will enable and prove instrumental in the coming of Israel's Messiah. For they are direct ancestors of Jesus. Humanity's hope and Savior are ultimate, as we looked at last week, kinsman redeemer. So we're going to wrap up the narrative this morning. And we left Boaz last week in the city gate. And if you were with us, he had taken Mr. So-and-so's sandal that nameless relative of the widow Naomi who refused to stand in the gap for his family member in need. And Boaz says, if you will not uphold your responsibility, let me walk in your shoes. Give me your sandal. I have the right. I have the means. I have the willingness to redeem. I will buy back. I will pay the price and bear the cost so that this family might recover from their losses and see their future secured. And we read at the end, then Boaz said to the elders and to the crowds standing around, you are witnesses that today I have brought, bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech and Kilion and Milan. And with the land I have acquired Ruth, the Moabite widow of Milan to be my wife. This way she can have a son and carry on the family name of her dead husband." and to inherit the family property here in his hometown. And that's where we ended last week. And this week we pick it up in verse 11. And we hear the crowd's response. Then all the people who were at the gate and the elders said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. May you act worthily in Ephrathath, another name for Bethlehem, and be renowned in Bethlehem. And may your house be like the house of Perez, who Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. Do you guys remember the Hebrew word that we've learned in our journey through the book of Ruth? Anyone remember? Chesed, yes. It's that one word in the whole Old Testament that best sums up God's character. Hesed is God's extraordinary loyalty, his gracious devotion. 
to those whom He calls His own. It's that steadfast love, that loving kindness that at great cost He demonstrates to those He chooses to commit Himself to. Hesed is that beautiful dance of self-giving and grace and faithfulness. And the crowd, they recognize that same character in Boaz and Ruth. And they respond to what they see as a reflection of God's heart and God's way. They respond to that with a blessing. In fact, they will speak this threefold blessing over this new couple. The first part, may the Lord make the woman who is coming into your house like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the house of Israel. We don't realize how amazing this is. Lord, make Ruth like one of the matriarchs of Israel. Through her, build up our nation. Through her, allow your family to grow and to reach new horizons. Remember, Ruth is a Moabite. She's of an enemy people. She's a foreigner. She's a former pagan. But now Bethlehem embraces her as a true-born Israelite and as a spiritual leader among the family of faith. They recognize her devotion to God and his promises. They see her dedication to God's people and her passion for God's purposes in the world. So they beckon God too to see Ruth and to honor her for her incredible faithfulness. They're also pleading with God to open Ruth's womb. You may have forgotten, but Ruth has been childless for over a decade. There are fears that she might be barren, that she might be unable to conceive. So this blessing also acts as a declaration of faith, a display of confidence in God's goodness and his power. The next part of the blessing is not directed towards Ruth, but to Boaz. May you, Boaz, act worthily in Ephrathath and be renowned in Bethlehem. Boaz has been so concerned with securing a future for these widows and for preserving the names and the inheritance of the deceased that he has given little thought to his own well-being. Therefore, these residents of Bethlehem, they pray over him a blessing. They say, you who have watered others, as it says in the Psalms, may you too be refreshed. May the Lord restore your wealth. May he permit you to prosper. May this kind of selfless act of redemption yield for you great rewards. May you be trumpeted. May your name be trumpeted among your own people as a a model of righteousness. May God preserve your reputation and may he preserve for you a legacy. And then the third part of that blessing, Boaz, may your house be like the house of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah, because of the offspring that the Lord will give you by this young woman. I know this. we have some cultural distance from this text, but Bethlehem is praying that a dynasty might be birthed by the marriage of Ruth and Boaz, that God would establish for Boaz his family line within Israel. You see, the house of Perez, it was the most influential and respected clan in Judah. They were the family that kind of ruled Bethlehem. And 
They too had this complicated origin story that involved untimely deaths and a relative who was unwilling to redeem and a foreign widow who seized the initiative and through whom God's purposes were carried out. If you want, you can read the entire story of Judah and Tamar in Genesis 38. It is a messy, complicated, morally ambiguous story. In a way, it's kind of the photographic negative of Ruth and Boaz's relationship. Yet facing similar challenges, God established the tribe that was to one day rule Israel. And now the people of Bethlehem are praying that God may do something similar through Boaz and Ruth. May righteous and just and self-giving leaders be born within your house to lead God's people into the future that he intends for them. And I don't have much to add to these beautiful blessings. I feel like they speak for themselves, but I could ask, what are your words accomplishing in the lives of others? It says in Proverbs 18.21, death and life are in the power of the tongue. Do we use our words to build up, to speak life, to praise what is good and beautiful and true? Do our words fan hope into flame? Do they bring strength to the weak? Do they bring to remembrance for folks the Lord and his faithfulness? Do our words breathe courage into the fearful? It is really my prayer that like these residents of this ancient village, our words might be these signposts that point others to Jesus and to Jesus' love and his power. Now our story keeps pressing forward and we get to witness now God's life and blessing break out for this little family. Verse 13, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. This is the second time that we hear God taking direct action in the book of Ruth. In chapter 1, it says, God visited his people And he gave them bread. He filled their empty bellies with food and he broke the famine. Now at the end of chapter 4, God is visiting Ruth and Boaz and Naomi in their need and he ends Ruth's barrenness and he fills her womb with a son and their household with life. Ruth gives Naomi a grandson and an heir for the house of Elimelech. She gives Boaz a boy who will make his name great and secure a future for Israel. And then we keep reading. Then the women of Bethlehem said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. I really like these ladies of Bethlehem. kind of want them to do me next. I want them to speak into my life all that God has done and is accomplishing. 
Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer, and may his name be renowned in Israel. This is interesting. They're not talking about Boaz, who, as we discovered last week, is technically Ruth and Naomi's redeemer. But these women, and I wonder if any of them were shepherds, or if their husbands were shepherds in Bethlehem, these women foresee in the birth of a child in their village an even greater redemption. Here is someone who will take away the memory of bitterness. Ruth has given birth to a redeemer. Permit me a quick tangent. I love how Naomi's story ends. She had loudly complained, remember, that God had devastated her and that God had stood against her. She said, he brought me home empty. She renamed herself Mara, Lady Bitterness. But now these women in Bethlehem, they proclaim an incredible truth. They say, Naomi, sometimes we are emptied so that God might fill us to overflowing with his grace and his care and his favor. Naomi, you accused God of bringing you back empty But God in His grace was already at work. He gave you Ruth. And Ruth, I know you miss your husband. I know you miss your sons. Ruth is the world's greatest daughter-in-law. She's greater than seven sons. She's incredible. She's valorous. She dedicated herself to you. And Naomi, she loves you. This is the only time we hear of love in the book of Ruth. And I think it's an important corrective for us because we so often think of love in romantic terms. Our modern definitions and understandings of love tend to highlight the emotional. But here in the Old Testament, we realize that love is something far greater than feelings. Love is a choice. Love is covenantal. It's rooted in commitment. And it's not primarily demonstrated in words, but it is expressed in actions, in these acts of chesed. Remember what Ruth had said to her mother-in-law. Do not urge me to leave you or return from following you. For where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more. Also, if anything but death parts me from you. That is love. It is willfully relentless it is extraordinarily loyal it is graciously devoted to another and it is expressed over and over in thick times and in thin and at great cost and yes love is rich and fulfilling and ultimately emotionally satisfying but real love presses forward even when the warm fuzzies are not there even when there are not that positive emotional reinforcements. Love is a choice and a commitment. And they said, how can you say, Naomi, you are empty? You have a daughter-in-law who loves you and has shown God's love to you. But I digress. 
The women of Bethlehem say that through this child, Naomi, you will experience God's filling. Through him, you will flourish. You'll bubble over with life and joy and praise will return to you. You'll marvel at God's goodness and his grace. And then we read in verse 16, then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse, his nanny. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. And they named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse and the father of David. Don't overread it. It's not saying Naomi formally adopted Obed or somehow raised him as her own child. What is saying that this, the scripture is saying that grandmother and grandson had a, a special relationship. They were joined at the hip and Obed was the apple of his eye and he took special care of his grandmother. But the resonances here with Jesus are just too great to ignore. A child born in Bethlehem who will be to us a redeemer, one who will remove our experience of bitterness and has come that we might have life and have it abundantly. And we meet him first as Obed. Obed means the one who serves the servant. And it reminds me of Isaiah 53's suffering servant, the one who came and was pierced for our transgressions. It reminds me of what Jesus said about himself in Mark Chapter 10, for even the Son of Man came not to serve, be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. But what Naomi does not realize is the one she calls Obed, servant through him will come God's anointed king. A man after God's own heart. The one who will deliver God's people from their enemies. The one who will free them for their, their self-serving and self-destructive sins. The ancient readers, they would know, they're reading with hindsight, they would make the connection between Obed and King David, Israel's greatest king, his grandson. But I think we, reading from where we read, make an even greater connection past David to Jesus. These women in Bethlehem, again, I wonder if they're shepherds. They speak the truth. God has not left us without a Redeemer. A child born in Bethlehem, his name will become great. He will restore our lives. How? By laying down his own on a cross. He will nourish humanity in our old age giving us victory even over death by the power of his resurrection. I love this little book of Ruth because it is truly the gospel according to Ruth. It preaches the gospel on every page. And then it ends with a genealogy. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. The end of Ruth pairs beautifully with the beginning of the New Testament. Matthew records for us the, the genealogy of Jesus. And let me draw to your attention a relevant passage. I'm going to read this. 
The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Tell me if this sounds familiar. And Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Nimibideb, and Nimibideb. That guy, the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. Uh, Boaz by Ruth. I mistyped that. Sorry, guys. Oh, no, no, no. That's right. No. Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab. Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth. There she is. And Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. Whew. Okay. We're out of the genealogies. It's the same lineage. Boaz and Ruth are direct ancestors of Jesus. The old Bethlehem farmer and the God-worshipping Moabite were King David's great-grandparents and Jesus' great-great-great-great-great-many-great-grandparents as well. And what is our takeaway from these beautiful genealogies? It's this, you do not know what your faithfulness today will bring about in the days, years, and generations after you. We live in a present, obsessed culture. We are addicted to instant gratification. One of our mantras is, treat yourself, don't cheat yourself. Or if you're old-fashioned, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush. I think that's equivalent. We move through life as practical materialists, right? We, we think that when the moment we die, the entirety of our story is done with and there are no repercussions here on the earth, no echoes reverberating into eternity. And that is a lie. Everything we do plants a seed. But what will that seed sprout? Will it be life-giving grain or it will, be, will it be strangling brambles? Paul in Colossians, he instructs us. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, if you're sharing in his resurrection, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things that are on earth, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Let me draw your attention to that little phrase, hidden with Christ in God. What will be the legacy of your trust and your faithfulness, your acts of hesed? Likely in this life, you will not know. It will be beautifully unseen. It will be a seed planted in hope, in faith that God will cause it to sprout Yet one day what was planted will be revealed. When Christ, who is our life, appears, then we will also appear with him in glory. Ruth and Boaz didn't know what the legacy of their costly love, their loyalty, their incredible devotion, they didn't know what would happen through that act of trust and faithfulness. They had a glimpse of it. Ruth knew that it would mean good news for her mother-in-law. Boaz knew it would mean good news for Ruth and Naomi. But that was just a part. It was just a sliver of what their faithfulness would accomplish. The author wants to make sure we see that their faithfulness led to King David. He says, you don't know it, guys, but you're preserving the royal line. 
Israel's great king will come to you through you because of what you've done. We've been in this time of the judges. Time of the judges was terrible for God's people. It was a time when everyone did what was right in their own eyes to the detriment of themselves and their neighbors. He says, guess what, guys? Your faithfulness, your trust in the Lord will end this period of the judges and God's anointed king will come. That's what the author wanted to make sure his readers understood. But now that we have this in the Bible with the New Testament, God is saying, don't you realize they were also standing in the gap for you? They were preserving his plan of salvation so that Jesus might come. Their acts of courage and faithfulness and trust in the Lord allowed us to experience blessing. So are you willing to labor for something unseen? Are you willing to set your mind on things above, not things that you can presently see on the earth to invest your treasure in heaven, in God's future, to the blessing and benefit of people whose names you don't even know. I've been told that the greatest evangelist in the 20th century was the man who led the man who led Billy Graham to faith. Right? He probably didn't see anything, but he was faithful to share the hope that he had, and the person that he led to faith led someone else to faith who led millions to faith. He never got to see it. But praise God, he was faithful. I think of examples like this in my own life. The greatest impact, I feel like, the people who've had the greatest impact on Brianna and Mai's marriage are our grandparents. We both come from divorce. We have great cautionary tales, firsthand insight in what can happen to destroy our family and our bond. But when we got married, we were like, we need a new legacy. And we looked back to our grandparents' generation, these godly men and women who didn't do it perfectly, but they were faithful through thick and thin. And I bet you they never once thought in their crises and the challenges and the complexities of their married life and family life, they never once thought, you know what? We're doing this for an example for our grandkids, but they were exactly that. I think too that we don't realize the repercussions, the change that God can do in our family lines through our faithfulness. I think of my dad who raised me, my stepdad, who was a father to me, he had no father in his life. He didn't know the first thing about being a dad when he stepped into my life at five. He only knew the heavenly father and trial and error, mistakes along the way. He sought the Lord and he tried to be faithful to that calling that God had put on his life to be a dad. And he built a new legacy with the power of the Spirit that I'm hopefully building on with my kids, that hopefully my kids will build upon with their kids. And then looking back, they might not even know it, but we've got this beautiful legacy of God's power at work in families because of his trust and faithfulness when he had nothing of his own to bring to the table except confidence in God. 
There's something else I noticed in the genealogies. Do you notice who Boaz's grandma was? Her name was Rahab. Does anyone know who Rahab was? She's a Canaanite prostitute. She is a woman with a sketchy past, a foreigner, a pagan, but she has this moment when the Israelite spies are coming to to reconnoiter Jericho that she has this sense that God Almighty, a great God is with them, and she switches her allegiance. She says, you know what? I'm going to bank my entire future and my hope, and I am going to cling to this God, and I'm going to trust Him to secure me and my family. Do you think it's any accident that the only person in Bethlehem who shows compassion and favor to Ruth is the person whose grandmother was Rahab? He's like, I've seen a foreigner who threw themselves at the mercy of God and clung to him. And I'm seeing it again, and I want to be part of her story. It's no accident. It's that legacy of faithfulness that starts with Rahab. It goes to Boaz, and then I can only imagine the Virgin Mary sitting there thinking as she reflects on her own family legacy of like, look how Rahab trusted in impossible situations, how Ruth trusted in impossible situations. Maybe I can bring the term and be the mother of this child that is in my womb, same village, that God promises will be a redeemer. What will your faithfulness today bring about in the days and years and generations after you? Hebrews 11 says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen, for by it the people of old, who we've been learning about, received their commendation, and skipping ahead a little bit, these all died in faith, not having received the things promised. They don't get to see the full implications of what trusting God and their courageous faithfulness would accomplish. But having seen them and greeted them from afar, that's all they get is hope that God will somehow make this seed sprout. That somehow God will take the meagerness of our faithfulness and by his power he will bring life. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God for he has prepared for them a city, an inheritance, a future, and a home. I know genealogies are boring. They're lists of names. But we do not know what our faithfulness today will bring about later. Trust Jesus Live faithfully and courageously even when you cannot perceive the benefit. And one day, God will allow you to see the lineage of your spiritual descendants. Won't that be a crazy day? When we will no longer be hidden with Christ and God, but we will be revealed and what He was working through us will be revealed in glory. Amen? Let's pray. Oh God, I love this little book. Not just because it's fascinating, but because it shows us your heart and your truth. God, give us the courage to 
trust you and to walk with you even when we do not see the present benefit, God. May you take our costly and imperfect faith and our trust in you and you make it something glorious by your power and work. Take our meager little offerings and break them and distribute them and may they be a feast that feeds thousands. God, it is so strange to me how you desire to move. You desire to move through us. So give us the courage to trust you. And Lord, we pray for those names that we will never know of our descendants that hopefully by your grace we will be examples of faithfulness to them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.